Hey there, welcome to SaaS Unbound, brought to you by SaaS Group. I'm your host, Anna Dana, and this is the show where we chat with inspiring founders and experts to get an inside scoop on how they made their business a success. And today with me is Nicholas Dorn, co-founder and CEO at FileStage, a web application to share, review, and approve digital content. And they have gone from being a small bootstrap company to a market leader in content review and approval platforms for marketing teams. And I'm super excited to be here and learn how you did it. So yeah. welcome. Hi, thanks <laughs> for the invite. <laughs> sure. Um, well, um, like I said, super exciting. You've got a, a great story to tell. You've been around for a while and, um, uh, let's maybe dig into your background a little bit, how you got here in the first place. Um, yeah, so basically my background is I originally studied uh, media management in the master's and worked in marketing, but also e-commerce for a while, uh, always like part-time. And uh, this is also where I personally discovered the, the main problem that we solve today. Um, basically, whenever there was marketing content coming from an agency, you need to really like review and approve it, check it, but then also get your buy-in from all the stakeholders in your organization. So it's not just you as a marketing manager. No, you also want your VP of marketing to be happy, the legal team to be happy, uh, product to be happy. Mm -hmm. And that's basically, yeah, again, where, where I discovered the problem that we solve today. Yeah. Yeah. All the marketers are just nodding there, listening to this. Yeah. <laughs> There's a lot of back and forth when you try to approve content. So, uh, okay. Um, how did you, well, obviously that was what, 2014, right? Yeah. Yeah. Official start is 2015, but definitely, uh, 2013, 14, we started to, to explore the idea. Yeah. yeah. All right. How did you validate it? How did you know that, you know, it's not just you and maybe something is wrong with, with your processes in the company that you worked with? Yeah, I think it's a, one of the, the most important questions, right? So at the beginning, I don't know, maybe some other founders can relate to that. You are a bit like, First time founders, you think you have a really good idea and then you, you feel like, no, I can't tell this idea anybody. I need to protect my idea. And that's completely wrong. Right. Um, the good thing is my, my co-founder basically also stumbled upon the idea from another field. So he was working in video production uh, on the agency side and basically for 50% of his time, he spent on getting buy-in from his, from his customers and playing email ping pongs with them. So the, the two of us had basically uh, a, a connection to the problem. That was a starting point. But then we said, okay, um, maybe it's not just, or maybe it's just us. Maybe you were weird. I don't know. So <laughs> we went went out and really had, had interviews with 30, 40 freelancers, marketeers, video producers, and really asked them, hey, um, when you produce something, uh, typically, how do you, do you review and approve this with, with your clients? How do you make sure others have a buy-in? How do you work? How do you communicate? Which tools do you use? What is a big pain point right now? What is really annoying you when you look at a typical week and stuff like that? And then based on that, we took the initial idea that we had that was at the beginning, it was just a video commenting tool that allowed you to share a video and then give precise feedback within a frame. That was the starting point. And from there, we really developed it into a complete review and approval workflow solution, always based on the feedback we got from, at the beginning, those early uh, early users, let's say, and early interview partners, even before beta, and then later on also from, from customers. Yeah. 
Okay, so those were just beta testers, right? They weren't your customers just yet. How did you get to them? Like, I uh, I always hear from founders that, you know, we went and we talked with people, especially people, uh, like you said, from your uh, target group, right? Not just, not, not your mom, right? You talked to freelancers, marketers. Uh, how did you convince people to talk to you? Because I think it's such a big problem to just say, hey, can you dedicate an hour or two to, to this, to something that I'm trying to build? Um, I think it's, it's, it's interesting. So I think on the one side, we had a really good network, um, coming from the industry on the one side, we knew like marketeers uh, on the other side, we knew like freelancers, uh, especially through the network of my co-founder. Also our university is like a media university. So there's a large alumni network that we could a bit like untap that helped. And then based on that, we asked for further interview partners. So we asked the ones that we interviewed, Hey, can you make an introduction to somebody else that, that worked out pretty fine. And I think also the other thing is a bit like make it interesting. So I think why should they be part of this interview? So let's say we really said, okay, this is about solving potentially some of your problems. Um, so I think this was also a really good hook for them to start sharing with us. Yeah. Cool. Okay. Yeah, that makes sense. Uh, all right. So um, you said you, you were testing with them and initially you had a bit of a different uh, product in place, right? So uh, at what point did you start asking people to buy this solution and uh, how did you um, how did you price it? And uh, um, did you grandfather your uh, your beta testers and uh, just just gave it to them for free just because you know they helped you build it or at some point you said you clearly understand the um, the benefits of this solution so we think you can yeah pay yeah. For it. Um, yeah definitely was a journey and uh, let's say also at the beginning I mean you cannot start with a complete. Uh, software suite or something so you always have to start from my opinion with a really niche one point problem fixing solution or something and for us the initial trigger was okay people have trouble to share videos in 2015 make them accessible for their the customers because back then yeah it was uh, not everything was working in the browser still right and downloading something was not working so that was the first trigger point and um, the other point was okay how to give precise feedback visual feedback um before people basically what they did is uh, they sent emails um with a time code and said at minute 120 in the upper right corner please do this and that and if you had nice clients maybe they put together a powerpoint presentation with screenshots explaining you what to change those were the nice clients the other ones were just maybe calling you friday night and saying hey those are my changes write it down okay thanks um so that was the the initial initial problem starting point um but at at this point we haven't had a product at all so we just had let's say insights then some mockups well designed and then based on the first interviews we created like click dummies kind of prototypes um, and ask again, okay, how do you like this solution? Mm -hmm. And this is something we repeated for a couple of times until basically a couple of those people that we interviewed said, no, this is really nice. Can I use it? And then we said, yeah, it's just a prototype, but soon. Um, and based on that, we built a bit like an, an email list um, for people that wanted to use it, um, promoted or started like promotion at the same time. 
uh, I remember that I personally went into a lot of Facebook groups for filmmakers and just said the same thing. Hey, we are working on this problem. Would love to get your feedback. You can use it free at the beginning. So we collected basically beta users um, and then we launched it. And then I think maybe six to nine months or something, we didn't charge anything. We just let them use it, improved it and so on and so forth. Um, and then later on, I mean, we were completely bootstrapped, right? We had then early business angels that really just brought in some money to to hire some working students, but really not not a lot of money. Um, so we were at a point where, where basically the business angels said, okay, now you need to prove that you can make money with it in order to raise a round, right? Um, and so basically we just reached out to, to the active beta users and said, okay, uh, from next month onwards, you need to pay for it. Um, obviously we started with a really low pricing point. Uh, there was no, uh, let's say Stripe or something implemented to really charge them automatically. So it was really like, yeah, we will send you an invoice. Uh, and a couple of those early beta users did it. And thanks to them, I think they really believed in it. Um, we were able to to really grow this further and then later on raise our first round and professionalize what we did. Um, I was quite, let's say, quite manual at the beginning. Um, but I also feel like it's easy to to use technology as an excuse and say, ah, we have no payment provider yet. We first need to implement Stripe. We'll take a year, so we cannot charge people. I think to a certain extent, there are always ways to to prove your first point, right? So, True. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, that's what I hear all the time uh, from like the first stages of a startup that we made people believe that there is a product or that we are working on a product, but they believed in the solution. And uh, then we just did everything manually. And, you know, we charged with, like you said, an invoice or like a PayPal link or something like this. So, yeah, uh, absolutely agree with you especially right now like with all the no code low code whatever available and uh, the price for you know for developing a product is just it's it's nothing right now so you yeah it's it's not an excuse well maybe it was in 2015 it was a bit more uh complicated but now definitely not okay mm -hmm. so uh you went uh through facebook being your first marketing channel and, and customer acquisition channel. Um, how did it work for you? How, um, how did you make sure, or did you at all, um, want to make sure that people convert it from this channel and do you still use it as you scaled? Mm -hmm. Um, definitely not using it anymore. Uh, I think it was, was working fine to win the first couple of hundred uh, interested beta users, so to say. So, and again, the, the trigger point was really to say, Hey, we're founders, we are bootstrapped, uh, really personal, um, approach and we have this idea, but we would love to get your honest feedback. Uh, and that triggered a lot of people. And I think especially those early adopters, early innovators that you typically have in the, in the life cycle, those people, um, and I mean, conversion rise, I think we, we just measured where I think analytics and then also the mailing list, you could just see who's coming from Facebook and we could really see those, those peaks once I posted something in a group. And then of course I became a bit obsessed with finding filmmaker groups, uh, uh worldwide. So I think ended up with maybe 40, 50 different groups, uh, posted different things there. 
Uh, but at a certain time, it becomes saturated, of course. You cannot do it forever, and then you have to build other channels. And I think what we've done then is to to switch over more to um, outbound mailings and things like that uh, in addition, and also content marketing is something that we've done pretty early on. Yeah. Did you try uh, paid advertising on, on Facebook? At this time, it was just not possible because we had no money. So yeah, <laughs> until right. the, the first seed round, basically, there was no no cash for things like that. So you just had to do uh, low-cost marketing. Yeah. Okay. And I, I keep hearing you say um, we, uh, we found filmmaker groups, mm-hmm. right? So at what point did you, uh, did you start switching to marketers from, you know, from just filmmakers? Yeah, yeah. Um, I think it's potentially something you see quite often in, in SaaS, right? You start with, with a tiny problem. Again, that was video commenting problem, filmmakers. Then from there, um, the filmmakers, the freelancers, the small production firms brought us into agencies because agencies often work with film producers together. So they um, came like in contact or got in contact with, with our product. And through that, basically realize there are more feature requests from people saying, hey, it's really cool for video, but could you also do it for PDF or for images or later on also for websites? Uh, and that was a bit like the entry point into the, the agency worlds, let's say going away from just video to, to all kind of, of creative content. Um, and so we iterated into that and then also realized, of course, um, agencies are closer to to brands and so on, and they're bigger. They have more money to spend. They also have a bigger problem, so that was a bit like a natural progression. Um, and then from there, basically, from the people that really worked in the agency field, um, they started to share content via Fivestage with their clients, aka brand managers, marketing managers, uh, sometimes really large enterprises out there. And so those people came, uh, got in touch with, with us as well. Um, and again, uh, we listened to their feedback, asked for feature requests and things like that. And there we learned, okay, uh, we basically need to combine like this easy feedback and sharing on content, the visual part with a really strong marketing workflow um, process, let's say, uh, functionality that really allows you to, to funnel a piece of content through your organization and getting visual feedback from everybody. So again, uh, not just from agency to a marketer, but then also from the marketer to the legal team, to the product team, to the PR team and so on and so forth. And I think this is, let's say, where, where the true magic uh, happened and in terms of now we feel like we have a real well-rounded product that sits exactly between like let's say the content creation part so what you do in figma adobe mm-hmm. um that side and then on the other side uh, i mean we also realized that companies spend a lot of money on content distribution social media um but also analytics in this case uh, but everything that happened in between content creation and publication was such a mess so um email ping pongs, Excel sheets, and you want to like super professional companies where everything looks professional, really have this gap there in their process. Um, and that was for us, like, let's say the sweet spot we we then identified in terms of, okay, this is exactly what we are going to do. Um, we are not a best of suite. We're not a content creation tool. We're not a project management tool. Now we are review and approval solution and we are the best ones in this. Um, and left and right, we connect with your existing 
existing tools. Looking for new ways to find customers for your SaaS business? Consider adding an affiliate or customer referral program. Rewardful is the easiest affiliate tracking platform to set up, manage, and scale for SaaS companies. Log your customer acquisition cost and only pay based on results. Integrate Rewardful with your Stripe or Paddle account and set up your affiliate campaigns in minutes. Rewardful automatically tracks referrals, calculates commissions, handles upgrades and downgrades all seamlessly in the background, whether you sell one-off purchases or recurring subscriptions. Companies like Podia, Copy.ai, Barometrics, Synthesia, and many, many more are already using Rewardful to add that sweet, sweet MRR to their businesses. Sign up now at Rewardful.com for a free 14-day trial and turn your biggest fans into your best marketers. Right. Oh, that sounds uh, that sounds like you really thought this through. Because uh, even for me, like when I first found it, I was like, okay, so this definitely looks like a project management uh, solution, right? And uh, uh, maybe you know, maybe it's uh, kind of similar with uh, Prodpad or something like this. But then uh, I went into it a bit further, and, and I realized that no, not not really. Uh, you're just solving this one problem that um, me as a marketer I experience a lot, and yeah, for me it's super exciting. But it also uh, sounds like you went from um, kind of like a B two C company to a B two B. Right, you were targeting just filmmakers and freelancers, right? And then uh, you went to agencies and bigger companies. So, uh, also, how did it uh, change your your marketing or your customer acquisition? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, I think we were never like B two C, but I get what you mean. Like we were like really like the target audience were like yeah. freelancers or really like small small production firms of one to ten people or so. Uh, and then we really went up market uh, step by step, um, and and by that, of course, you also have to change um, your marketing strategy. And of course, we tested a lot of things also over time. I also think that some things, let's say, in a certain time period, they work well, and then not anymore. Um, I mean, for us personally, the big learning is we were never really able to master paid, so that's just something. I don't know. I, I also believe uh, today that let's say for paid marketing, most people see through it, especially if you want to market a product to marketers, they know exactly what you're doing there. So let's say I, I never felt that this is a good idea to, to really, really push for it. And then of course it's extremely expensive to test it. And um, what was always working really good is to produce good content, great content that helps marketeers to become even better marketeers. So that's why we were really obsessed with, with our blog um, and really producing more and more of those good content pieces, but then also had a lot of guest posting things going on to just, let's say, untap other audiences. Um, let's say early days, this was, for example, no film school, really large uh, community for, for all about filmmaking and, and things like that, and just try to contribute and give value. Um, and this helped a lot. Uh, and then in parallel, I think the, the outbound marketing mailing piece, um, let's say it becomes more and more tricky today on the one side, because you don't want to jeopardize your domain uh, by being a bit like a spammer. 
Um, but then on the other side, also with GDPR, let's say it becomes or became a lot harder. So let's say for us, it worked for a certain period of time and it worked quite good to get especially like direct contact to marketeers. But at the same time, I think it's a fine line between sending something that's really valuable, um, even though, let's say, they're not waiting for you to send it. Um, right. But at the same time, let's say, don't not to be annoying and cross that line. So that was a really, really fine line and also some learnings, of course, we had to take in terms of how many mails can you send, when, hmm, what the content is about. Um, so those were, were the main things um, uh, for a certain period of time, yeah. Right. Yeah. I, uh, I think like whenever you, um, you build something like just judging by my previous experience, I'm coming from a tech startup. So selling a tech solution to developers, like, uh, you know, selling a magic trick to a magician, uh, same with, with marketers, right. They know what they want. They know how it's supposed to work, right. They, they know what pain points it's, it's supposed to solve. Uh, so it becomes a bit trickier. Um, so yeah, um, with paid advertising, I think it never works if, if you're building something for like this targeted group of professionals because they just, yeah, they see through it. Um, okay. And, um, what was the, uh, the most important or the most crucial feature that you had to, um, that you had to build based on the feedback? Because, uh, I remember from one of your podcasts, you said you're a feedback company, right? You still base all your product roadmap on the feedback of your customers. So what was the most important ones, like the ha moment that customer gave you? Uh, well, <laughs> tough question. And uh, since I'm not the chief product officer, <laughs> maybe not, not the right one. So I think I can just share anecdotally, but maybe sure. one point about feedback company. Yeah, it's true. So, I mean, we started by, by talking to people and it's something really made a habit. Um, so we're continuously asking our users basically to get feedback and to request features and then we have a pretty nice system in place in the background to collect those feature requests and rank those feature requests and score them. And uh, let's say later on, if a feature is prioritized, we will reach out to, to the users again that ask for it and show them mockups and make sure it's really a solution to the problem they, they shared with us. Uh, and then of course, once it's published, we also inform them again, Hey, here's your feature that you requested. And I think that creates a lot of buy-in in the community. Um, oh, yeah. and then I think over time there were potentially a couple of, of features that really worked out. I think on the one side, it's again, usage driven. So I think adding all alt file types was a thing we really worked on for a lot of time. So again, video, no matter what kind of images, um, HTML was the latest in this area, but then also any kind of PDF or doc file. So at the end. We want to be the solution where you just think, okay, whenever I have a content to share and discuss with somebody and I need an approval, I can just throw it into five stage and, and work is done. And I never have to think about, is this the right format for, for five stage or do I need to use something else? So that was one of the biggest things we solved. And I think the more we did that, um, the more usage we also got. Um, and then the other big feature, I think that was really like a hell of a work, like maybe nine months or something was to really 
builds workflow functionality into FireStage. So at the beginning was basically a bit like like a Dropbox or something maybe. Sharing okay. files, getting really precise feedback done. And then over time really implemented like step-by-step -step review workflows, completely customizable where you can define first step it's me, second step again is legal. Um, nowadays we also added automations. I think that's a really powerful thing as well because we want to make people more productive. We want to save time for marketeers, right? And normally a marketeer has never enough time, always new ideas, projects. So the less they have to spend with, at the end, it's annoying, like content review, the better. The more we automatically do for them and filter, the better. So um, nowadays we have like automation features that automatically help you by, hey, I, I throw this file here in in the workflow. And then I know in three days, uh, if nobody reacts, they get a message from FileStage and get a reminder. Once it is approved by a certain person, it will go into the next review step automatically uh, to a different group of people. Once uh, the majority of those people has approved it, it will automatically be published. Um, Slack message will be sent to, to me in terms of your, your file is ready. So lots of things like that to make your life easier. Um, so yeah, um, to, to sum it up in a nutshell, it was like to support all kinds of file types. And at the, uh, the second step, like to really have an easy to use uh, marketing approval workflow feature. Yeah. All right. Well, I, I think that it's a very uh, good space to automate because, uh, and I mean, don't get me wrong, I love automation, but I also think that there is the time and the place for it. Some things cannot be automated or shouldn't be automated. And um, in marketing, I mean, in, probably in every other job, but um, I just speak from my own experience. Uh, but yeah, this is something that um, would, yeah. would, <laughs> would save it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I strongly agree. I think it, there are a couple of jobs that we just learned people normally don't enjoy. So for example, yeah. what you don't enjoy is to run behind your CEO or your finance department or legal and remind them to review your stuff. That's normally not really nice, especially if you're lower in the hierarchy, maybe it feels even like, ah, can I do it? Also for agencies is one of the things client comes and say, I need this by tomorrow. And then you produce it and then you say, okay, now I need your feedback. And then you wait two weeks. So you can never yeah. really hold your deadline. And this is something pressuring people having a deadline in mind, but at the same time, they need to remind people. So stuff like this, I think should just be automated. I think, whereas working really on the creative part, really coming up with new, new ideas, solutions, input, I think this is normally what people enjoy. Um, so there, I think it doesn't make sense to, to automate it. Yeah. All right. Yeah. Uh, okay. So, um, I think it also speaks to just the company culture right it's something that adds to the company culture if it it whether um it it probably doesn't add any authority to people like you said a bit lower in the hierarchy but um but then again it lifts off that uh pressure point where you know you have to just ping everybody every day like do this for me do this for me um so yeah Okay, and uh, just something interesting I noticed, and you're not the first founder to say that, right? Um, I've heard a lot of founders of 
companies that scaled say, well, you know what, this is not really uh, what I do, right? I'm not a product manager, so I'm not the best person to answer that question. So how has your role changed as a CEO as you guys have grown, right? Because obviously like in 2015, you probably knew absolutely everything that's going on and how it's going on. So what's your role now? Is it more strategic? Is it like culture building, inspirer, or what is it? Mm -hmm. Yeah, today I think it's a, it's a mixture. We've been working strategically on the way forward. Um, also, let's say overseeing a bit like or contributing to the financial planning and the commercial planning, um, overseeing, let's say, all the revenue generating roles we see. This is my main job. And then at the same time, of course, uh, C-level, uh, especially CEO, you always present your company. I think what I do is on the one side, I have many conversations with other SaaS founders to get more insights, talk to VP marketing, basically to to just understand what's going on. So bringing in those insights and sharing them internally. But at the same time, of course, be be a bit like the spokesperson about Fistage and what we do. So I think this is also one one part why, why I'm going into podcasts from time to time to share. Um, so I think this is also what one of the jobs I really enjoy. Um, but yeah, I think overall, this is what I currently do. And then coming back to your question, I think at the beginning, 2014 or something, I mean, at the early, early stage, you do kind of everything, yes. But then with my two co-founders, we pretty early split a bit like roles in, in terms of they were responsible for the product and the technology. And at the very first time, I my job basically, I defined my job basically as, let's say, protecting them from all the organizational, sorry, word shit out there in terms of setting up the company, the legal stuff, uh, making sure we have a bank account, all those things. I, I just did it while they were working on the first version of the product. Um, and then from there turned into, okay, now I'm responsible to market this and win the first beta users. Um, converted more into a, a salesperson after a time. So we had then a bit like marketing going on with, with some people. And so I focused on really selling the first bigger tickets. So I took the role of a salesperson. And then at the same time, always I have been responsible for finance, funding, getting in more revenue, make sure we always have enough fuel to, to go to the next step and never go bankrupt or something. Um, also accounting and all of that. I uh, always hated accounting, hated it. It killed my Friday nights. All the fun and, stuff. <laughs> yeah. Um, and then luckily over time, I was able basically to to find a really good CFO that built a team for us to now run like the financial part, investor relations um, and also accounting. And it helps a lot. So I can now focus even more on strategy and the commercial part. And, Right. Okay. But that also means that uh, you should have hired people that whether do it as good as you used to or even better. Right. And uh, this is also something that that I've heard here on the podcast. Um, if you don't hire the right people, it will affect the company badly in the long run. So what's your experience with that? And, you know, uh, don't name any names, but... <laughs> Did you have like bad hires and in terms of what was it cultural? Was it 
I don't know, just just difficult to work with? And how did you manage it? And what is the culture that you're building right now? Yeah, I think definitely had some bad hires or basically I think the people were not bad person or something, but just like not a good fit for for the stage we were in. So I think at the end, it's it's always a bit like our fold, management fold, if you go for the wrong people. But uh, I mean, we're first-time founders. So let's say I, I never hired a VP marketing or VP sales. Um, so let's say it was easier, but still hard sometimes for the roles I did myself before. So I did sales, so I kind of had a clue how it should look like. Um, however, it was was like a learning curve. So um, one of the things I we learned is to really make sure we check the culture in the job interviews right. and not just, let's say, the skills. So culture was really, really helpful. So said it a couple of times somewhere else, but I think at the beginning I thought like uh, company culture is, is something you find in a management textbook in university and don't need it. It's like, hey, you are startup. Culture is automatically cool and everybody, mm. <laughs> not gonna Everybody's, happen <laughs> yeah it's a hacker and you know yeah everybody has spirit. to tune and, and wants to <laughs> wants to rule the world and whatever yeah. so um not not gonna happen if you want to grow especially in a fully remote company like Vice, that you have to carefully build a culture um so on the one side we at a certain moment defined a bit like our cultural values and what kind of dna do we have what kind of company are we what's important for us how do we want to work together what do we expect from each other? And that, that was taken into, into certain um, cultural values. Uh, and then basically we built that in all our job interviews. So we try to tell them more about our culture when we hire. But then also there's always a cultural interview with people that are not from the same department that are hiring you. Just cross-check if you feel that is a good thing. And by that, I think we were able to reduced the number of wrong hires a lot um, from a cultural aspect. Um, and then from a skill level aspect, I think what we also learned is the trap is that you, let's say the moment you have a bit more money through investing, you feel like now I can afford really good people and I want to hire fast, a great team. Learnings, I would say it's better to what, what also people say, right? Hire a bit slower for quality. And especially um, look for previous experience. So ideally, if you are 10 people today and you want to grow to 30, try to find somebody that has seen this journey already from 10 to 30. Um, and then somebody that's yeah. seen this journey from 30 to 100. Um, rather than going for, hey, I was working for this company with 5,000 people and I had 20 people in marketing under me and I was really successful. And you think, yeah, okay, but here you're going to have two people and you really need to juggle between hands-on and strategy. And and I think this is where we have seen many people fail in terms of they're either like super strategical um, and not head on, hands-on at all or they're just too hands-on and cannot really oversee the long-term vision. And getting that right, I think, is always a challenge if you're not a huge company. Yeah. True. Oh, yeah. Amen. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> seriously, uh, I couldn't have said it uh, better myself. Like, uh, right, if you are at the certain stage with the company, and for some companies, it makes sense to hire an 
super expert, especially if you're in tech and you just want to um, overthrow everybody else with the tech that you're building, then maybe it makes sense. But if, yeah, if it's someone in marketing, um, especially it's, it has to align with your culture because it's just, it's a creative job. So you kind of have to be in the same headspace, um, as people you work with. All right. Yeah, especially, especially for marketing. I mean, I, I realized I, uh, as well, right. Marketing is not marketing. There are, let's say language or brand oriented people. There are people that take it from a visual point. Then there are marketeers that really take it from a numbers point and just see as okay i need to produce 500 leads okay i go for it no matter how let's say dirty it looks um so i think it also really depends what you need and that means like you need to know basically where you are and what the next step is uh but this makes it of course extremely difficult because as a company startup you never really know uh for sure uh, what will be in 12 or 24 months even if you pretend to say you know so I think this is this is the toughest thing I think to get right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. it's it's what they say about uh, your your forecasts in in your pitch when you pitch to investors. Just skip it. No one knows what's going to happen. It's just wishful thinking. Uh, but okay, on that note, um, do you have any kind of hack that uh, you're using that you may have never shared before, whether in hiring or in uh, in, in finances. Uh, like, for example, um, I had this interview and I'm not sharing because, you know, it was so amazing. It was just a hack that I, I wish everyone was using uh, just because it was so weird. Like <laughs> I was uh, interviewed uh, for uh, for a marketing role in a company, and they just skipped like all the questions that made sense, like about my experience or about culture or like anything that you would expect from an interview. And they only asked me like weird questions, something like, "What if you woke up and uh, everything is purple but bread? What happened?" And I was like, "What?" How, how is it going to help you or me mm-hmm, <laughs> understand mm-hmm. that we're, you know, right for each other? Yeah. So, um, <laughs> but they said it was their hack to, to understand whether a person, you know, is a creative thinker or a creative problem solver. So <laughs> what's your hack? Yeah. Uh, not sure if I can share all my, my great hacks. I think uh, <laughs> look, looking Just at that. <laughs> at the hiring thing i think what what we learned there to that, that was a bit like the aha moment on the one side we ask people about their energy level in terms of what when you think about your last jobs what were things that really boosted your energy and didn't feel like work and then the other way around like what drained your energy that's a really good thing to understand if their sweet spot is matching with your job profile really um and then on the other side when we filter people that apply the best ones later on for us at least were the ones that were really concrete about the results they have achieved so rather saying i launched five campaigns and produced marketing collateral blah 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 and they were like uh 
in the last six months, I achieved 6% lead growth by pushing block productivity. And those statements, you know, like, okay, they're not, let's say, bullshitting around. They really have done something and were really responsible for, for pushing target or achieving targets. That was one big thing, one big hack. Um, and then uh, on the other side, we, yeah, in the in the interview, we, we asked them basically, really mean question, but it helps a lot. If we hire you now and we're super happy and you say, yes, you want to join our company, at what point would you fire yourself again from our company? Um, oh, and why? <laughs> uh, and I was really also really, really good <laughs> to understand their kind of value and perception to the job in terms of how much time do they think they have to achieve certain things? What is important they want to achieve? Um, so questions like that really, really helped, I think, to see a bit more straight. Um, yeah. yeah, because at the end, I think Feistich will really need like hands on people that really can produce results, see numbers clearly, and let's say don't shy away from uh, focusing on the right thing. So, yeah. Right. Now I'm thinking when <laughs> when <laughs> I would fire myself from SaaS Group. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No, please don't. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, but yeah, just a couple more questions. Um, first, what's the uh, biggest win and the biggest failure so far? Maybe for you personally, as as you know, as the CEO, where you you think you maybe failed a, a bit, or for a company. Oh, 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 oh. I sometimes feel that, yes. but I have yeah, to. Yeah, it needs a bit of time. So, <laughs> <laughs> that I have to send this yeah, uh, yeah. question up front, but then I think no, yeah, <laughs> I just love just, how people just play <laughs> some elevator music in between, yeah. so I can have time <laughs> to think. Um, no, I think, of course, there. Yeah. When I think about it, maybe there are 10 different things where I would say ah, afterwards, well, you're smarter. That was, that was not a smart move. Um, in general, um, I think spending way too much on paid advertising without proper measurements in place. Um, on the one side, triggered by early investors in terms of, yeah, you need to produce growth and yeah, with paid advertising, everything's easy. Mm -hmm. uh, and they're, let's say, not being 100% behind it. It's a trap. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, definitely. So, so you spend it, and the thing where also we were we're seeing leads coming through it to the website. They even signed up for a solution, right? But then it took us, I don't know, six to nine months until we realized all of those people we want through advertising were basically not using the product later on. They were just joining and then that. Um, so it was a mixture between having the proper measurements in place. Uh, and only then start to do it. And then also, of course, be be on top of things and say, okay, when when is this a success? When are we going to stop it? Um, that was definitely something because it's not just the time you spend on it and the distraction, but at the same time, it's really burning money, right? Whereas other marketing channels, it's only your time and not additional money for, for this. Um, definitely a really tough one. And then also say, uh, maybe it would have been smarter to take this money and invest in one or two good, really good people that drive it forward rather than, let's say, sending it to, to Facebook and then Google. Um, yeah. So, yeah, one of the learnings, I think. Yeah. Okay, so no paid advertisement for, for early stages. Uh, what was the win? Um, 
the win, I think, is really to focus on on our users, on their feedback constantly, uh, focus everything around that and really make sure we constantly get their feedback and we really deliver the best customer service we can. We try to deliver and solve their problems. Um, that really helped us, I think, to grow and reach product market fit and build a user base that likes us until to a point today where um, we basically rent, went into the product-led growth uh, direction now. We now have a free a free version as well and stuff like that, I think would, would have never been possible without the product at this level already. So definitely one of the biggest, biggest uh, yeah, achievements or good things, I think. Cool. All right. And uh, the question that, uh, again, uh, I couldn't skip just because you're also in marketing, right? And uh, there is AI and uh, we're talking about automation too. So um, are you planning to implement some kind of uh, AI solution? Do you think AI is good for marketers and where do you think we could leverage it? Uh, definitely. Yes. Can't tell too much. Um, I mean, everybody's oh, talking yeah. about AI. <laughs> it was already on the lists for two, three years. Um, for us, AI makes sense. Let's say when you have a real use case and for us, the real use case, um, that we are solving again is that marketeers should become more productive and spend less time reviewing content and menu on a manual base. Um, so our vision is here to get rid of repetitive tasks in the review and approval space. So this means whenever week by week you are checking catalogs, if the right disclaimers from a legal perspective are there, yes, no. Or if your uh, new brochure is in line with the, with the brand um, corporate design and things like that. Um, that's something where we just see, okay, this can be automated rule-based and I can help you with that. And that's for us really the entry point. And then of course there are more, more things that can be achieved there, especially giving recommendations later on about how to improve your process. Hey, if you want to, um, let's say reduce turnaround time from 60 to 30 days, then we have seen in our insights feature here that you spent 20 20% maybe in the, in the review with product, but 80% of the time is spent with legal. Um, but you only have one person there reviewing. So automated recommendation is okay. You either need to make it a higher priority there, hire more people. Mm -hmm. If you really want to bring this down, it just doesn't make sense to go and try to speed up the product review process. You need to attack here. I think providing those insights to the management level, um, or other insights like, you're working with 10 different vendors, 10 different agencies. Um, on the one side, maybe some agencies have a really nice hourly rate and that looks cheap, but then you learn over time, um, you have always 10 review rounds, feedback loops uh, with, with this one agency. So they just burn your own stuff, stealing time from them. And as we know, internal... Um, Stuff costs are also pretty high. So in reality, basically they have an hourly rate that's nice, but basically you burn half your stuff with them. Whereas maybe there's another agency that has a higher rate, but everything is completed within three review rounds. Um, so <laughs> I think this is this stuff we want to just um, 
give more insights to and help people to to make better better decisions about the review and approval process. Yeah, yeah. Okay, that makes sense. That uh, again, that's a very uh, good, I think, space to automate. Right, you you just want to to know something faster and not spend too much time um, researching it, especially if you're an agency and you've got like too many vendors that that you're working with and just just too many projects uh, on hand. But uh, amazing! Well, I'm really excited to see how you're going to implement it and make sure I know uh, where you're going. But it was great talking to you. It's a great story that you have, uh, and I really liked your hacks. I'm definitely going to to share it with the team uh, if they don't listen to the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> they must listen to. You. <laughs> they must. Um, but um, yeah, thank you so much, Nicholas. And um, yeah. All the best with file stage. Thanks a lot. Um, and thanks a lot for the interview. Really, really Thank good you. questions. <laughs> All, right, All right. Take care. Take care. Bye-bye. That was yet another awesome conversation on SaaS Unbound. We're always looking for new guests to share their experiences. We mostly talk with bootstrapped SaaS founders. And if you're one, reach out to me directly at anna at saas.group or find me on LinkedIn. If you're not bootstrapped or even not SaaS, but have a great story to tell, we want to hear from you too. And obviously, SaaS Unbound wouldn't be possible without the SaaS Group, a founder-friendly private equity company that buys awesome businesses that people love to take them to even greater success. If you're thinking about selling your company or just exploring your options, feel free to visit saas.group, fill in the form, and expect a response in under 24 hours.